Okay. Um, if you like titles or something which helps you focus, I think we'll call this something like the glory of Jesus or the earthquake-esque glory of Jesus, something like that. Um, what I want us to do is look back to the ancient church who teach us what we should be obsessing about this week because there is mass obsession at the moment over earthquake glory type events on planet earth and the ancient church they've been through all that before and they teach us what we should be like and this week is there a glory that we should obsess about even above that which is on our news feeds and everywhere we turn at the moment um uh, is there like a current event which is even greater than what the bbc is saying uh and the world needs us to get this right, to be shaken by a proper earthquake-esque glorious vision. So that's where we're going. And children, if you haven't absconded over to Matt Pugh's channel and you're still here, um, draw. I want to see pictures if you can. So grab a piece of paper and pens and stuff and then email them over to me and I'll stick them on our church Facebook as well. Um, draw a shining man. Um, maybe a man with bright stones under him or fire around him. Then maybe turn a page and draw the same man on a cross and try and do this. At that point, try and do a picture of the earth shaking. All right. So glorious shining man, cross earth shakes. And uh, I'll check back in after when I come round for the Greyhound stuff. Um, the glory of Jesus. I don't know if Robin Haters switched to online sales at the moment, but if he is, Mike Reeves wrote a good book on the glory of the Lord. Um, it's worth a read. I forgot what it's called, but um, Rob will tell you. And I've used some of his phraseology for this talk this morning, this sermon, the glory of of Jesus. So I got an opening question for you all. Um, have you ever said God is glorious? And if you have said it, what do you mean? What does it mean to say glory to Jesus or glory to God? If you are a Christian, you've had your sins forgiven, but that's just the beginning of life, just the beginning, because now we're saved into life. Deadness is gone, banished away. Jesus has dealt with that. What's next? Well, actually, um, I got a verse which might answer that. Just listen to this. You know where it is. Um, Ephesians chapter one. Blessed be the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And then if you just jump to verse 12, you don't need to look it up. It's all right. Then we who that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. So why have we been saved? It doesn't stop at just being saved. The life begins now and experiencing the glory of Jesus is our whole purpose. Now, um, I think if Christians are honest, they sometimes think like this. Is God glorious? Because sometimes he just feels like an ogre in heaven, a divine security guard 
who was just watching CCTV, waiting for me to mess up. And when I do, when I sin and fail, he salivates with joy and rubs his hands together. And so I better tune in this morning to listen to Owen just to keep God off my back, just to appease him a bit. Uh, otherwise, he's going to get super angry. I think actually, I think lots of Christians feel like that. I better read my Bible this morning to keep guilt and God off my back. I haven't said my prayers. I better get on with it because otherwise he's coming for me. Um, the problem is the text we just read says the church is saved to praise the glory of the living God. And that that sort of attitude isn't that glorious, is it? There's no glory there. Uh, in our thought process about the living God and our faith, which can be once so liberating, can become to feel like homework, homework that we need to keep up. Um, we better inflate the ego of God, otherwise he gets angry. So we'll gather back together this morning or open our Bibles to pump up the ego, and for a while he'll be happy with us. Now, that might not be all of your experience, but believe me, it is a lot of teenage people's and poorly taught people's view of the living God, and Christianity is a burden for a ton of people, which is the last thing we need at the moment because there are burdens everywhere. Um, the great theologian Bart Simpson said, religious people suck up to God. And actually, he's pretty much spot on for quite a lot of Christians just sort of sucking up, keep him happy and then get on with life. Get on with what we actually enjoy doing, which has got real glory to us. What Bart hasn't grasped is that God is glorious and God is glorious in lockdown and God can be experienced in his glorious way in lockdown. And we don't have to suck up. Um, so I'm married to Rita. And if Rita doesn't have a glory to me, I just do stuff to keep her off my back. Um, there's no real joy in the marriage. It's just she's going to go angry. So I better do the dishes to keep her off my back. Or maybe I'll watch Call the Midwife for a bit, you know, keep her happy. Because otherwise I'm going to have... A row. That's what happens in a marriage if there's no glory. It, and it's a terrible marriage if that starts to happen. And it's a terrible church marriage to the living God if there's no glory there. So with all this earthquake trembling-esque things to catch our hearts and imaginations, whether it leads us to fear or arrogance or whatever it is, what is the glory that we need to tap into. So what is it to be saved for the living God's glory, if that's our aim as human beings? So in the Old Testament, um, the word glory, kavad, um, or honor, is linked to weight and heaviness. There you are, children, you've learned something today, heaviness and weight, it's the same root word as glory. In the Bible and homework, if you read 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 18, um, you find a guy called Eli who's really fat and falls off his chair 
and breaks his neck and dies. And the text says, because it basically says, because he was old and heavy, the weighty glory of him, the thing that made him up was his stomach. And that's how the Bible uses the text, uh, the word. It's also linked, the word glory, to like worth and what you treasure. Um, the thing that defines you. So Eli's stomach was the thing that defined him. And it can also extend to brains and stuff. And when I was growing up, uh, when countdown was on at tea time, we would often say Carol Vorderman's defining feature is her brains because she's clever. That's her glory, the substantial part of her. When I was growing up in high school, all the girls fancied Brad Pitt because his glory, his defining feature was his face. And these days, of course, the children watching, you know, it's Justin Bieber, isn't it? And there are a lot of believers out there, maybe perhaps even in the Heath eldership, uh, some secret believers. Yep, Tony's nodding. I can see that. So it's the glory, their beauty. That's how the word is used. Also, it's used to what someone most treasures. So it's their weight, their substance, their defining part, their key feature, and what they most treasure, their glory. So there's there's a rapper in America called 50 Cent. Don't recommend you tune in. He released an album uh, when I was younger called Get Rich or Die Trying. It's interesting because last year I read he filed for bankruptcy, but his album is Get Rich or Die Trying. So there's 50 Cent um, basically saying this is my treasure. Get rich. That's my weight. That's my substance. Hence, Heath Evangelical Church in Psalm 49, that we are all warned as humans about living for the wrong type of glory. Let me just read this. This is 16 and 17 of Psalm 49. Do not be afraid when someone becomes rich, even if it's 50 cent or your school friend or someone bragging in work. When the glory of his house is increased for when he dies, he shall carry nothing away with him. His glory will not descend after him. And the point of the psalm is live and have a vision of a glory which doesn't fade and die. And then if you fast forward to Timothy, he talks about not being obsessed with jewelry and stuff like that. It's all right, but don't live for that stuff because there's a greater pearl that's holiness and godliness. So the Bible's really clear. There are many glories that we can live for and obsess over this coming week and even today, but they're all going to end if it's outside of a particular everlasting vision. Um, I was in Lanish in high school growing up and someone a couple of years above me got into drugs and fighting people and he was the talk of the school. He was so popular, his glory was his popularity. Um, beating people up, then taking drugs. He was the talk of the town, living for that sort of purpose. Then he took a drug overdose when he was in year nine and he tragically passed away. And that glory that he lived for, that reputation is over. And actually, most of you wouldn't have even heard of him 
if I hadn't mentioned him, because even that whole time has just moved on. Every glory outside of one vision, coronavirus glory, will soon be in the annals of time. And there's this one continuing thing that the church needs to latch onto, which lasts forever. Living for lesser glories is sin. It's stupid because it doesn't last. It blinds us to something greater, which we're going to look at in a second. So with all due respect to Bart Simpson, here's where his theology falls apart. I'm not sure he's that great of a Hebrew scholar because this is where his theology idea of sucking up to God falls apart. The church shouldn't gather together to inflate the ego of God. It shouldn't think that's what worship is because God's weight in the Holy Scriptures, God's weight, substance and glory is eternal, everlasting, maximally full. Um, so because the glory of the living God is full, everlasting to everlasting, we do not gather together to read, pray, have fellowship, preach, whatever, sacraments, to inflate him or expand him or keep him off our back because he's already maximally full. It's like get over ourselves. He doesn't need that. You cannot add to an everlasting substance which is maximally full. He is super overflowing, maximally full from ancient times forevermore. So um, you're at home in lockdown, or at least you should be. Um, the church is called today to have an obsession, a vision, and it involves trusting him enough to ascribe greatness to him and just tell him what he already is, what he already is, because he's full. Declaring the living God in lockdown daily to just say who he is and what he's like. And that is a privilege that we get to do, like Moses of old who said in Deuteronomy 32, I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. And I guarantee you, tons of Christians aren't doing that at the moment. We're ascribing greatness to anxiety. It's like, no, don't do that. That's not glory. Don't do that. Put it in perspective. So that's what ascribing glory is. But what is the glory of the Lord? What is it? So if we're going to worship specifically this week in a way that lifts us just beyond the guff of evangelical sayings, which don't mean anything. If we're actually going to worship, what can we latch onto when we're tempted to sin? When we're tempted to get snappy at home, when we're tempted to fret and go backwards into darkness. What is the glory of the Lord to help us specifically? All right. So don't go to Ezekiel yet because that's cheating because Ezekiel just nails it. Um, first, I want to tell you about someone else. 
and then we'll get to Ezekiel. So bear with me, bear with me. Who else has this earthquake experience of really getting gripped? Okay, so there's an earthquake going on at the moment. You know what it is. It's the virus. It's shaking everybody. There are earthquakes in the Bible, and the ancient church teaches us actually proper earthquakes to get obsessed about. So bear with this now. Follow this. In Habakkuk 3, you don't need to look it up. I just want to trace this theme. In Habakkuk 3, Habakkuk looks back to when the angel of the Lord delivered the ancient church and shook the superpowers of Egypt to their grave. And then it says the angel led the ancient church to Sinai, where they're going to meet the angel's father and worship him. And it all goes wrong because they withdraw and go back in their tents. You remember that story in Exodus. But it's all about Sinai shaking the ancient church, a proper vision. Then, homework, read Judges chapter 5, where Barak and Deborah, who were leading the ancient church at the time, sing of the way the earth shook back at Sinai by, not COVID-19, the living God. The mountains quaked, uh, the text says in Judges 5, with like trivial rubbish little glories, which will soon be forgotten. No, the Lord, the one of Sinai, the Lord God of Israel. So basically, the ancient church is taking, teaching us when the earth shakes. It, yeah, all right, forget lesser shaking. We need to remind ourselves of the, the earth shattering quaking of the living God and just sing his praises all week long. All right, wait, before we get to Ezekiel. So that's Habakkuk 3 and Judges. Now we read from Amos 1. Now, children, did you pick up on a word? Uh, in there, which is sort of linked to what I've been saying. The answer is yes, Uncle Owen, we did. That word was earthquake. So let me read Amos 1 again, because um, this is key. Amos was a shepherd in the ancient church, and at the time, the church had gone back to living to lesser glories, sinning with idolatry, and it was a disaster. So Amos chapter 1 opens with this. The words of Amos, one of the shepherds, the vision he saw concerning Israel two years before the earthquake when Uzziah was king of Judah. Now, children, I'm sure Heath Church children will get this. Have you heard of Uzziah in another passage in the ancient scriptures? Yep. Have a think. Yeah, you got it. I heard you from where I live. I heard you shouting it out. It is in Isaiah chapter six. Isaiah would have lived through that massive earthquake that trembled the whole world that Amos talked about. Amos is like, by the way, there's a massive earthquake coming. It's during the time of Uzziah. And Isaiah lived at the same time as the king Uzziah and would have lived through that earth shattering Twitter trending 
BBC News, Sky News, Earthquake. But there is another vision that the leader of the ancient church, Isaiah, is obsessed about. He doesn't even mention the glory of the COVID-19-esque earthquake which hit the world. Here's Isaiah chapter 6. He doesn't even bother noting any other quake than this one. Here's Isaiah 6, verse 4 and 5. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying, and they were calling to one another. I'm so freaked out about the earthquake that just happened and the virus. And no, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook. And the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, Isaiah cried. For I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. The earth has been shaken. But the ancient church records something greater. The presence of the living God, the Son of God, the Lord Almighty the Christ man, Jesus. Do you know why, um, anxious believers? Because earthquakes don't budge Jesus. They don't even touch Jesus. He is the rock. And the ancient church is focused on him. And Heath Church in 2020 this week is to be focused on him. Now then. All right, Owen, make it even more specific for us, please. All right, I won't, but Ezekiel will. So now please turn back to Ezekiel. We finally got there. This is a six-hour sermon this morning. You'll be pleased to hear. So please go back to Ezekiel chapter one. Owen, tell me something that I can latch on to this week. All right, Ezekiel one. Ezekiel speaks of the glory of God as two things, light and as a person, a man. Above the firmament, above their heads, was the likeness of a throne in appearance like a sapphire stone. This is why the children are drawing blazing um, artwork. On the likeness of the throne was a likeness with the appearance of a man high above it. Also from the appearance of his waist and upward, I saw the color of amber with the appearance of fire all around within it, and from the appearance of his waist and downward, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire. On the throne, ladies and gentlemen, now above Boris, there's another level, if you can quite comprehend it, it is a man seated, and he's bright like fire. So he's bright, and he's a man. Now, I got a quiz for you. Because the glory of God through the scriptures is 
basically always talked about as either a man or bright. So here's a quiz and it's finish um, the Bible verses. So the Lord glory then is a bright light and why? Okay, so Psalm 19, you know it all off by heart. It's about the Redeemer. Uh, it says that at the end and you all know who the Redeemer is. And it says, I don't know if you know it, he is like the sun, S-U-N, that rises each morning like a bridegroom that chases away darkness. So Psalm 19 says every time you wake up and you see the sun rising, it's basically like the Redeemer Jesus who rises each day and chases away darkness. And he does it as a bridegroom for a bride. Here's one you'll know. This is easier for you. Luke 2. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, the angel of the Lord stood before them and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were greatly afraid. There's the Lord going out of his way again to convey this, this thing. Here's one more, Matthew 17. Now, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James and John, his brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them and his face. His glorious face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as the light. Children, you get in that in your artwork. So church this week, above anything else, like the ancient church before them, is to praise and obsess over the glory of God. And God has gone out of his way to remind us this week that he is light. The living God is light and chases dark things away. Dark things, children, are frightened by the living God. You're like, oh, and that's not very practical. Actually, yes, it is. It is because at the moment when we turn on the news, we are seeing thousands of stories of darkness, decay and fear. And we need a hero of brightness. We do literally when we get up in the morning feeling depressed, we need a champion who is just going to chase the darkness away. Um, we have a God who chases sinful things Dark creatures, he's tackled them and they're fearful of him. Things that frighten our children. The living God, he annihilates that stuff. Turn on the news, there's a thousand stories of darkness, which means there's a thousand ways to praise Jesus because he's not like that. And where I last lived, there was loads of witchcraft and I was called out to that stuff a lot. And it's so dark. And I used to come home just thanking God that he's light and that the church there was a place of light and that my family is a family of light. We don't always prove it that well, but the living God is light and he's chased away the dark things of night. Children, you just want to cast all your lives on Jesus now. It's the best life ever. Church should not be a place of burdens and homework like a married um, woman to an angry husband trying to keep him off her back. Church and church families are places of light. 
Uh, Richard Sibbs said, birds sing in the sun, sinners sing most clearly in the light. <clears throat> That's why, by the way, we read from Ephesus, because that glorious light of the living God found its way to that church in um, Ephesus. And it says this in chapter five, for you were once darkness, but now you are the light of the world. Uh, sorry, the light in the Lord. Live as children of light. When we meet Jesus this morning and talk to him, we turn from being children of darkness to children of light. Do that every day. And the people on your street will notice from a socially distanced perspective, of course. Even this, when the Lord judges throughout the Bible and even today, when he judges, he's being light because he's judging the dark things of human nature and world nature. Even the passages of judgment, we can praise him for being light. So a Christian is called to praise his glory. It's a beautiful pulsating light. But <clears throat> we're going to wrap it all together with the final specific vision of glory to help us this week. <clears throat> Ezekiel says the glory of God, the earthquaking experience is most clearly seen in the form of a man. A man to rise us above the quakes of modern culture. Let Hebrews put it another way. Hebrews chapter one, verse three. The sun, S-O-N, is the radiance of God's glory. So the father's light is Jesus. Jesus is the weight of glory. And the father is no selfish ogre demanding praise like a CCTV security guard. He is, in his essence, a sharer of his light and glory, a sender of his son so that children of darkness can experience the light. Get your thought process changed if it's anything but that. Now, at the moment, I don't share my children with anyone because of lockdown. Um, I don't even let them go out in the cold um, in case they get a snivel. I'm that sort of parent, a bit of a freak. But in case they get into danger, I'm like, eh. but Jesus didn't self-isolate and the father didn't hold him back. Jesus entered a planet which had far worse dangers than COVID-19. It had people like us in it who were just waiting to kill off the light. The father is not a big head or an ogre who loves praise. He is a giver at a great cost. The father in his inner weight, in his inner being, in his inner honor and glory, according to the Holy Scriptures, is that he sends someone beloved to him in order that others can participate this week in light and light behavior and kingdom trust. Here's John chapter one. The word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld 
his glory. The glory of what? Of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. <clears throat> Someone once said, the more I learn of human nature, the more I love my dog. Now that you think about that, I actually think what he should have said is the more we look out and there's earthquake news everywhere and darkness and human nature, the more we look at that stuff, the more we should love Jesus, the sinless one, because he was light. Now, let me apply this to your Monday lockdown. <clears throat> what we read about Jesus, who was the glorious one, whom we have been saved to trust and become more like, is he wasn't, his glory wasn't priggish or self-righteous like the old sixth form prefects used to be holding to the laws more stringently than the headmaster and lording it over people. Isn't it tragic that the more religious people get, the less human they often become? It's not like that with Jesus. That's not the glory of the Bible. When you look at Jesus, the man full of glory, sinners loved his company and people knew they could turn to him in anxious times or when they're stuck in sin and death. That's glorious. Um, he is more glorious than any other person you will ever invest yourself into. Girls were safe around Jesus because that's Christian glory. Children were safe around him. Boys were safe around him. Parents could entrust their children to go near him. If he had a mobile phone, he wouldn't send rude texts or short texts during lockdown. If he was given a job in lockdown or at any time, he did it properly um, and his standards wouldn't have slipped over time. Sometimes, you see, we divorce glory from actual human nature and Jesus displays the glory of the Lord most clearly. So when we say, oh, God is glorious, we need to think it's light, but it's human divinity shining through human flesh. If he was given a building or a home in lockdown children he wouldn't trash it um he wouldn't get snappy husbands in lockdown he would be glory he was one solid block of purity and to this on his merits we've been saved but also called this week to focus on now the last thing i want to hammer home and the most important thing of this sermon. This is world-shaking stuff that the ancient church obsessed about, and it's this, how Jesus attained maximal glory. So Isaiah 53 says Jesus became numbered with the transgressors. So he stepped out of the heavenly realms into the world of darkness. He aligned himself with people of darkness, with ISIS bombers, with VD patients, with internet scammers, with porn addicts, with unfaithful husbands, with drug users. He aligned himself as one of those. Why? So that he could liberate him 
them from darkness and bring them into glory. But if you want to experience this glory, you've got to meet this man. You've got to. You can't get to the father's glory except through him. And so I'm going to close by teaching something really key. And it's the key of the ancient church to experience more glory. It's the key with the modern church to experience more glory. And it's the key with Jesus who went on to experience more glory than a time he had before. How did he get there? How are we going to get there? Right. Okay. In this unsteady time to close. The ancient church got shaken by the father to experience more glory. And that's so often the way to taste more of Jesus, to be led to more of his father. The Lord God shakes the ancient church. That's how we get glory. So in 1860, Robert Germain Thomas, you know, the story in uh, North Korea, the stories are conflicting, but the most probably the most accurate one was before he was beaten to death for being a Christian. He forced a Bible into the hands of his persecutors and then they killed him. And then they went home and plastered their walls with the text of scripture and began to become Christians when they read it. But it was an earthquake experience for Robert Jermaine Thomas to go through for the glory of the Lord to widen. In the 1940s in Korea, communism crept in and they destroyed, or so they thought, the church and persecuted them. So Christians in the north started trickling down to the south from Pyongyang. They left everything. Some were tortured and they went south. And then the communists tried to kick them out of the south as well. And the church, through that quake, began to realize there is nothing to hold on to other than Jesus. And my friend went there recently uh, to South Korea. They were invited. And it was five o'clock in the morning in the freezing cold. And they were going to hold a prayer meeting. And the building was half broken down. And he was like, no one is going to be here in this weather. And when he got there, there were 3,000 people ready to be led in prayer. And the whole place was crammed, he said. And then they said, please don't preach for longer than an hour because we've got to get to work at eight o'clock. 3,000 people praising the glory of Jesus. How did they get there? It was a terrible earthquake in the 40s and 50s that got the church to taste that sort of of glory and it was exactly the same as Jesus and he is calling us to go through unsteady times again to get more glory because in John chapter 12 the glorious man says this the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified so the glorified one is going to be even more. He's going to go through something which is even more glorious. Then he goes on to say it's where this grain will fall to the floor and die so it can produce more fruit, more glory. It's where in Hebrews chapter nine, we read he offered himself up in the spirit. 
and we call it the place of the skull in the dark place outside of the city where the glory of the Lord traditionally was. He went to where the dark things roamed and held their sway. It's where Jesus most clearly revealed the glory of the living God. And it's where the Heath Evangelical Church say this morning and all week long where Jesus was slain for me at Calvary, where our darkness and everything that that entailed, doubts, fears and sins, everything was put under him. And in my experience in 2004, it was where the glory of the light of the man of God was put on to me. My friend wrote this, of this, I'm sure, his sufferings, especially in the three hours of darkness on the cross, he plumbed the depths of human anguish and misery of physical, emotional and spiritual distress and pain, the like of which are only known and experienced in the darkest hell. Only darkness surrounded this light. Yet for him, since he was altogether without sin, the misery and suffering was necessarily greater than that of damned human beings. He drank the very dregs of the bitter cup of divine wrath upon sin. And we this morning are touching now upon the most profound reality that can ever be considered way above and beyond COVID-19. And while much will remain mysterious for us about it, not only on earth, but in heaven, we can sing all week long with gratitude, bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a saviour. And after that, the earth shook and the ancient church sang. The great shaker of Isaiah was shaken to the core on the cross and the world shook. And that is the earthquake of the glory of the Lord that we are to obsess about this week. And it's a glorious light. It's where Jesus trusted the Father's will, even when he couldn't quite see it. He still went there. Spurgeon said, when we can't trace his hand, we can trust his heart. And then Jesus brings in the new world to come with no earthquakes, with no viruses, where he is now reigning unshaken as the unshakable man, never to be shaken again. And the glorious Jesus will bring his bride through shaky times to greater glory now and forevermore. May the ancient church teach us great things about the living God forevermore. Amen.